Hey there cats and kittens and welcome to episode 3 of Bang on the Strillers, a podcast where I, Geraldine Quinn, talk to a number of my friends in the performing arts industry about all sorts of nonsense. Now, this episode is with one of my oldest friends in the world. He also happens to be in the cabaret genre, um, but that basically means that we talked for a really long time and I'm not just going to get one episode out of this guy, I'm going to get two. So this is only part one of this particular guest's podcast and a little bit later on, maybe next month or the month after, I'll get into part two. So sit back and relax. I always say that. You can sit on the edge of your seat and be really tense if you want. It's entirely up to you. I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to live your lives. What the hell do I know? Look at me. But first, a quick announcement from your host. Most episodes of Bang On The Strillers do contain some profane language, but that's hardly a surprise. We all work in the arts. Half my guests don't have children, and those who do are probably happy to have a bit of a sweary break from them. So if you don't like swearing, you have been warned. Now, for a glossary of today's episode. Wes Snelling, an actor, singer, dramaturg, writer and director. We've known each other since we were cabaret babies and Brunswick Street Fitzroy wasn't yet an over-commercialised twee, cashed-up 20-something vacuum. Basically, before it turned into Chapel Street plus yarn bombing. Oh, I'm so old. Comedy Festival Roadshow. This is the sold-out annual national and now international tour of various comedians by the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's a great initiative and we are all grateful to be included in it in the past or at any point in the future. Wollongong, the third largest city in the state of New South Wales, also referred to as The Gong. They have at least one cinema there, I know, because we went to it. But you'll hear about that later. Golden Gibbo Awards. Named after the late and great Linda Gibson, the Golden Gibbo Awards are the award for the best independent local production presented in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival any given year. Wes Snelling has been nominated for a number of them, as have myself and I won one once. It was really great. The Moosehead Awards. The Brian McCarthy Memorial Moosehead Awards were established in 1987 and provide assistance in producing a show in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Wes Snelling has been the recipient of a number of Moosehead Awards, as have myself. As has myself. Anyway, they're really good. Tina Del Twist, a cabaret character created and performed by Wes Snelling, described by Snelling himself as a drunk woman who sings jazz. She has a beautiful voice, a habit of forgetting which city she is in, and tends to fall asleep in the middle of songs. The Continental Café, a much-missed live venue in Melbourne's southeastern suburb of South Yarra, which closed in 2001. During its heyday, the Continental played host to many of the biggest names in Australian and New Zealand music, including Paul Kelly, Tim Finn, Vicar and Linda Bull and Vince Jones. But more about that later. Please welcome to your ear holes, Master Wesley Snelling. It's dark in here now. Do you want a light on? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Technology. Cabaret. Cabaret. Speaking of cabaret, here I am seated at the lounge room slash dining table of Mr. Wes Snelling. 
Good evening. Good day. <laughs> good morning. Good, good, good. Whatever part of the hourly cycle that we have arbitrarily named time. Well, I live on cabaret time, which is my favourite kind of time. It basically means there is no time. If I decide to get up at three pm in the afternoon, I don't care. It's cabaret. That's that would how it be goes. Such a blissful thing. I'm feeling really weighed down by time at the moment. Weighed down. Yeah, I feel like I am a slave to time rather than me controlling my time. Right. Mm. We've got to stop that immediately. Is it just a state of mind? Yes. Okay, I'll just stop that then. (laughs) It's interesting. I was just in Vietnam. Yes, that's correct. I was just in Vietnam on a two-week adventure slash holiday. Jeez. And it is funny how that plays with your time. I was getting up every day at 6.30am, riding a bike to the beach coming back, having buffet breakfast, going into town, doing all of this crazy stuff before 10am in the morning. But I'd go to bed at like 9.30, 10 at night. Yeah. That is unheard of here in Melbourne. (laughs) There is not a – I would not go to bed before 2am. Like I I don't know what that's about. I don't know whether it's about the heat, the 35-degree heat, or the fact that because when you're on holiday – your your brain opens up to more potential and you're not kind of weighed down, as you say, with things that you have to do. And so you're a bit more free-spirited. I don't know. I think that time as well, I didn't expect to get so philosophical so early, but I think that when you're in your home city, being awake at night is a different thing because you know where you are, you know who your friends are, you know where you're going, you know where your home is. Yeah. When you're somewhere else, I tend to yeah get up earlier and go out during the day and then go, right, that's it, I'm written off by nine and I'm home eating a pizza and watching something on on my computer or whatever else. Actually, that sounds like most of my days at home. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> I was doing um, the roadshow for a comedy festival this year I had a couple of dates in Wollongong, which was fantastic. I hadn't done it for a few years. And we all went to, to the pictures. Went to the pictures? Went to the pictures. We went to the flicks. And and we had an absolutely wonderful time. And it was with a, a really great cast, which included the stand-up comedian and improviser extraordinaire and all-round lovely gentleman Xavier Michaelides. <gasps> He's a blessed puppet. Isn't he Isn't he I, a sweet thing? I just adore that man like a brother. He's just so – he's just like a big bear. I mean, I mean, I don't mean like he's a big bear. <laughs> but he's the kind of guy that you go – you could just go up and give a big squeeze hug to. He's a cuddly guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I spent a, a couple of days camping with him at the Falls Festival. Oh. And he was just, we just had a ball. But he's, um, yeah, he's, sorry, go on. No, but the reason I mentioned him was, was we had this fantastic time at the at the pictures in Wollongong and then I had a, an actual moment where my brain went, this is what you can be all of your life. You can actually just be quite happy that you're existing. <laughs> and it had never crossed my mind before. And I suddenly, and think it because Xavier's so relaxed, we did have quite an intense conversation about Ugg boots yeah. <laughs> and whether or not they should be worn in public. And he was very much of the Michael Eady school, which was, of course you can, they're comfortable. Of course you can wear That's them it. out. Whereas I'm sitting there going, if you catch me wearing these past my driveway, you have permission to put me down. <laughs> and, and I just sort of had this great moment of, oh, Oh, if you just stop worrying about all those other things, you'd be all right. Yeah. You might be better company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. Transition. So I went to this gig last night 
I went to a concert. I shouldn't call it a gig. Gig became an unfortunate or an unfashionable word to use a couple of years ago. Did it? I did. I don't know why. Maybe I'm still unfashionable. I still use it all the time. Well, because I can't think of another word, so so do I. <laughs> but I went to see... Gig. What's wrong with gig? I don't Is it because know. it's of gigabytes? Like it's got a double meaning? I don't know. I think it's a bit... It went the way of groovy. Um, anyone who says something like that. Or oh, trendy. Yeah, Ugh, yeah. Or it could have just been a tosser that was telling me this and just trying to mess with my head, which is can, pretty easy. Can I still say ace? You can. <laughs> <laughs> um, am I allowed to? <laughs> no. I still feel like, you know, there's those words like that. that you go, it's sitting on the cusp. <laughs> you have dispensation to use the word oh, ace. I'm going to use ace. Anyway, I went to this this concert, which very a friend of ours very kindly piffed me a free ticket to. And it was an it was an acapella group from the US. Who uh, naturally seven? Right. Now they were phenomenal. They opened up with a version that I've since realised is one of their biggest hits from their biggest selling album, which was their acapella version of Phil Collins' uh, "I Can Feel It Coming in the Air Tonight," and it was actually amazing. Yeah. Because they do they use distortion uh, pedals, they use loop pedals and they create this band sound from the seven of them on stage and magnificent voices control like you can't believe. And I'm going, yeah, this is oh, just learning so much. It's just reminding me of when I was a teenager and I used to listen to things and pick apart the arrangements and pick apart the harmonies and try to work out how things fit with each other and building a song. And, and um, then it started to go slightly weird. In Rush? We got, Wait, set the scene. Where are we? We're at Hamer Hall. We're at Hamer Hall, which is a how many seat venue at the I Art Centre? I reckon 800. It's huge. It's, is, it, how, is it full? Pretty much. I was in the circle uh, towards the back and there were some empty rows up there, but it looked pretty stacked down in the stalls. And suddenly after a couple of songs, I was like, oh, that's very impressive. And a few of them I went, oh, yeah, you're over-egging it a bit on that. You could have cut that a bit earlier or what have you. And I've got a problem with a cappella. What? No, no, no. Geraldine Quinn? No, no, not all a cappella. But I, I feel quite strongly that some a cappella groups sing very beautifully and with great precision and no guts because it feels like they're worrying about blending. Getting it right. More than attacking the song. And these guys, they were all over it. Like I felt it. Yeah. I could feel the dynamics in the performance. It was all great. So there were a couple of songs I was like, oh, okay. Oh, no, no that, one, that one's great. And um, then just before the interval, I had already been somewhat confused by the World Vision um, tables that were in the foyer. Right. And one poor little ginger boy actually tried to stop me to have a conversation. And I don't think I'm a very famous person, but I just presumed when somebody makes eye contact, I've met them somewhere and I should be saying hello. Yeah. And so I did that. Oh, hi. And then I realised he was trying to engage me for the purposes of... World vision. World vision, which is okay. Funny you say that because I was there is that thing with a cappella that it's a little bit on the twee religious side yes. often, not all the time. Yes. But there's that element which irks me a little bit. But go on. Yeah. So I kind of avoided this guy. He had stopped me on the way to the bar, so he was he was already on the back foot. And we get to this bit just before the interval, so halfway through the concert, and it was two and a half hours. It was a 7.30 start. I got out at nearly 11. And 
they suddenly sat down and very earnestly started to tell us all about their trip to Cambodia and that they'd been on the road for five and a half weeks and they went to Cambodia and Cambodia's had all sorts of horrific things happen um, over many, many decades and are still rebuilding after the Khmer Rouge and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then they showed a film. They had a projection. They had projections all the way through it. So it was like full light show kind of mm. huge acapella thing. And they showed a several-minute film that did not involve them <laughs> until the very end we saw a bit of them. And I don't, I don't even know if they were even narrating it about the work that World Vision does in, in Cambodia. Again, I'm not taking anything away from that, but it was confusing. It was really, really confusing. And I thought I, thought I was at a music concert. I'm not, now I'm not sure what's happening. So after it was finished, they talked a bit more about how much they were moved and touched and that we should all go to the World Vision tables. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Um, Realising now that World Vision had presented the concert. Right. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that. And then they thought what they should do is to finish the first half. They said, right, we're going to do a song for you that I've heard every Australian knows. And I went, ah, oh, shit. What did they do? They did You're the Voice. That's one of your favourites, isn't it? It is. How did it, they attack it? Well, <laughs> well, they, they chose a song that was written by about a dozen people, I believe none of whom are Australian, and was sung by a man who was born in England, and they opened it by singing the two tones of a didgeridoo. Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I pissed myself laughing. So, Were you the only one? Yeah. You're right. <laughs> so by the time they'd finished it, I'm not saying it wasn't good, but by the time they'd finished it, I had to run out of the theatre and I was in tears of laughter by the time I got to the bar. I was pushing World Vision children aside going, you cannot stop me this time, crying with laughter, texting some of the members of my band who've done You're the Voice with me before, just going, oh, my God, I can't believe what I just saw. It was so, so earnest and it was really long. They just kept coming back to the chorus and they also slightly fucked the chorus by going into the woe a bit too soon. This is a musical thing that's hard to explain, but I was it was it was one of the most musically impressive nights and yet at the same time so funny. Yeah. <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. And the guy at the bar's going, what, what, what what's so funny? And I went, I can't possibly explain to you why this has amused me so much. And then I had to come back for the second half and it got a little bit more earnest. And the second interesting thing that happened was at the end of the show, they did a very clever thing. They got everyone to stand up and do little movements with them. Now, I'm a grumpy bastard, so <laughs> I refused. So I could just see the asses of people all around me. And I was at this point, I was so tired because it was the longest concert in the world. Again, I can't take anything away from these guys as musicians. They were truly great, great singers. And the, some of the arrangements were beautiful and really inspiring. And I went, yeah, yeah, that's what a cappella should be. None of this pitch perfect nonsense. And yet... <laughs> they, so they basically, by getting everyone to stand up, they've guaranteed themselves a standing ovation. Yes, sensible. For the song. But the first move, and I'm using inverted commas with my hands here, my Tim and Debbie inverted commas, the first move that they decided to teach the predominantly white Australian audience was to jump up and down on the spot. I was in the circle. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I've I've had a, a kind of a bad experience with a wall falling down in my past and was very close to running up the back of the theatre where I could get near a structure that was less likely to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just looking at, but I couldn't, I looked around and everyone was really enjoying themselves and that's great. But again, I, I, it was just so funny. <laughs> so do you think there's, firstly, I just got from that that I, I've decided I'm not going to have seats at my next show. <laughs> So that I just have a standing ovation for the entire show. Um, sex, sorry, gig, um, concert, drama show. But project, project, project. <laughs> what I wanted to ask was: Is did you get an impression that the audience were fans? Yeah. So that like they knew naturally seven before they went to the show. Yeah, yeah. I did a bit of research afterwards. They supported Michael Bublé. Right, here? Yeah, they toured with Buble, which is a fun word to say, Um, uh, quite a long time ago. They've toured with him a few times, I think, but they they had a big album in 2006, this group, which is where their Phil Collins came from. And it was also a really, it was a really gold FM, middle class kind of middle of the road white set list. There was a Simon and Garfunkel medley, a Sting number, John Farnham, yeah. Phil Collins. There was a lot of that. I'm wondering if we're just cynical assholes. Oh, there's also that. You know, like as in <laughs> I just go, you know, what's it's I wish that I had that 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 characteristic that I would go and go, I'm just going to have a good time and go with this and get up and dance and you know, sing along to the didgeridoo version of <laughs> your the voice. Um but I think I'd be with you. I'd be like, oh, this is just not working for me. I don't – it would It would feel like church. It It was actually less – I mean, the, the God-bothering was a concern for me, but it was also that sense of um, look at us doing something that you'll love that made me sort of go, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if you'd done K-San, I would have been really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is there – like if you go to – Say when you were doing shows in Edinburgh, Mm. would you work a song into something Scottish just to try and relate to Scottish people? Like was there? No. Well, this is interesting to me. I have an issue with that in terms of writing because, for example, when I did You're the Voice, um, my show You're the Voice, which the full title was You're the Voice Songs for the Ordinary by an Anthemaniac. So I wanted to write songs that were that bombastic, that were that a little bit naff but huge, uh, original stuff though. And when I did the show and it did quite well in Australia, I, I happened it happened to coincide with a period where I was unable to get back overseas and I'd already done five Edinburgh Fringe Festivals and I did have some people in the industry say, oh, well, you can't do that in Edinburgh. Whereas I had discussions with my director of that show, Casey Bonetto, and we talked about, well, why not? Because what all the show is actually trying to do, and it does it really overtly, is write songs and present stories that are mine because we're so used to appropriating in pop and anthemic rock in particular, we accept stories about places in America or even to a degree places in the UK, but why do we kind of shirk away from a song that just happens to have Dandenong as its reference as opposed to the Jersey Shore or something like that. Uh, So I was sort of saying, well, what I want to do is give you the stories that are mine because it's my show and I'm telling you my story. I shouldn't have to adjust that because the joke doesn't rely on that. 
the actual content of each song is about a different thing. They're just the that's just the color, mm. you know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering how naturally seven, <laughs> <laughs> like where they like it's obviously not in their usual set to add that in. But as you say, if they've toured a bit in Australia, maybe they've maybe do they have a following in other parts of the world? Is Australia their country? I don't know. That was their fifth or sixth tour here, right. definitely. So. So I kind of get why they did it. But then a bit of me was going, oh, would it be more impressed if you'd done the Guy Sebastian Eurovision entry song this year? Because you would have <laughs> totally, killed that. Totally. That was an amazing pop song. But, like, you've, they just chose so many white sort of bogan songs. It was really curious. Mm. I don't know. I mean, am I having a cultural cringe? Yes. Transition. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the anthem, it's, it's like Christmas songs, you know. It's just it's still funny to me, and it's you know it's not a new topic, but that like we all sit around at Christmas time, and I go up to my family's place, and in the background we've got songs about snow, and yeah, you know, there's no, there are no. You're not playing six white boomers. Australian, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> but you know that's whatever. I hate Christmas anyway. Do you hate Christmas? Uh, yeah. I don't like Christmas either. My parents got divorced at Christmas. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> just as a background. Well, well, on Christmas Day? No. They just signed the papers? Was that no, what they no. op- they opened up under? And, honey, I've got one for you, your last present. They're a lot happier divorced, so it's fine. It's it's not that. It's I think, but I definitely think there's this drama around Christmas for me with, with having split families and stuff where you've got to do 48 things. As much as they say, no, just relax, it's fine. No, you can't. Christmas starts for us probably now. Like now the conversations start about are you going to your mother's? Are you going to your father's? Are you going to what's the day involved? What's the plan? What are we going to eat? Like all of that begins now. I'll be at Dad's tomorrow for Father's Day and that'll be the next discussion. Right. What, you know. But that's not any different to families that are, don't have divorce. In, oh, totally. In them. No, like, I, yeah, we've absolutely. got a huge family yeah. and I find Christmas stressful for different reasons and I found it more stressful the older I've got because I've ended up being the only one who doesn't have to factor in in-laws. So I'll actually be texting, my mother might hear this, I'll actually be texting some of my siblings and saying, I want to make sure that you're going to turn up before <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. there because no, I'll, do, I'll get cornered. I do a bit of that too. <laughs> Um, no, it's interesting. It's um, it's funny though how recently I went to a friend Joe's Joe O'Callaghan's place. Oh, it's lovely Joe O'Callaghan, Joe, um, who had a Christmas in July. Right. I adored that. A because it actually did fit with the winter, all the colors. Yeah. <laughs> like that, but also there was no pressure. It just felt like a bit more random friends hanging out. And are your parents in different places? Yes. Like, as in different cities, states? Yeah. Uh, no, same state. No. Um, and oh, look, it's more just things like if I'm at if I'm at Dad's for Christmas Day, then I'm worried what Mum's doing as well. Right, like that means who's. But we all kind of try. I don't know. It's just a. It's just a bit difficult. My other brother's in Nashville, you know, and it's oh, just a really? bit hard trying to get everyone together. And it's it's a lot better since the kids came in, since really? the nieces and nephews, because there's a bit more of a focus and a bit more of a reason to have Christmas and the presents and things. I think like. It's a bit more exciting seeing the kids like running around, crowning the walls. You know? <laughs> like that's a bit more fun, and and um, than you know just adults sitting around boozing on. Like yeah, 
Yeah, we have got some interstate family members. So there is often a bit of brouhaha about who's coming down from Canberra or from New South Wales and when they're coming down. And they've got a lot of kids, so it's a big deal. But there's a bad habit, in my opinion, a bad habit that has developed of suddenly getting a text or an email saying, right, this Sunday, fish and chips, let's go, who's free? And me always going, I can't, I, I just can't. I'm, I'm fitting in sole trader in the arts kind of a business. I'm trying to create work and pursue work and fulfil the obligations of the work that I have got as well as try to find money and all the stuff that we have to do all the time. And then going, I can't just pop over <laughs> for Fish and chips. You all, the ones that are in Melbourne, you all live near each other too. I'm the furthest away. Where are they? They're all out uh, Moorabbin, Keysborough, Noble Park. So they're a 15-minute drive. It's half an hour for me. So on my own birthday, when we also have the horrible thing of group birthdays, which oh, I, uh, <laughs> it's like, all right, there's a lot of people. We just got to gotta do a job lot. That's it. <laughs> and there's a few of them, like June, where when I'm born, and in October, there's my niece and my brother and my my mum, and there's probably a few more. I'm really sorry, I can't remember. And I get why, but it's also often means that because two of the June, three of the June birthdays are out that way, and um, the outer southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, I've always got to drive for my own birthday, yeah, and get all the way out. But what? Um... Does it bother you that you're sharing your birthday? Is that the, the issue? Yeah, it does. It actually does. Because I'm born six days before my dad, obviously with a few years in between as well, not just the six days. That would be some sort of weird time lord um, insemination, which I'm really sorry I used that word in the same sentence as my father now. But but I did ask my niece once, whose birthday is um, again in that same first two weeks of June, I said, I really don't like sharing my birthday. She's only 11, so this would have been when she was nine. And I said, do you? And she goes, no, I don't quite like it. So I'm trying to take lessons from the kids. Do you know what's helped with birthday love is I've got to say, like I have, like the issue I have with Christmas, I have the same thing on a birthday. So on a birthday it's like, am I going to go to spend time with mum? Am I going to spend it with dad? I try and spend it with both family, you know, try and include everyone in. Mm-hmm. And it used and friends and it used to stress me out. So I'd, I try and put everyone together in the same room go, I'm going to be at this pub or this restaurant. Everyone just come to me. Uh, that would involve about four panic attacks. <laughs> because, you know, you just worry, like with any kind of party, you're just kind of worried everyone's fine and all that stuff. Then I started thinking of it in the last couple of years, like I started trying to be a bit less selfish about it and treating my birthday as actually a present, actually a party for my parents. Right. Like as in... They're the ones that went through the birth. <laughs> so, like, it's actually their day. And the more that I allow that, the more I kind of – I don't get shitty with them if they're going, I want to be with you at 8 o'clock and have the breakfast and I want to be the first person to call you at 7.30 a.m., like all of that stuff. I go, well, it's actually their day. I'll just give it to them. And then on their birthday, I'll make it my day. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, I, it's, I'm trying to ease up and, and just let, let that happen and just suck it up. Because otherwise it just becomes, yeah, anxiety city. Yeah, and I think that's very wise and I will also 
try to take some uh, some solace and some advice from your situation, as I have with the children, um, <laughs> who seem to be much better rounded as people now <laughs> than, than I have become. Uh, I think what's probably also an influence on that is being um, not having anything to deflect. So if something's going a bit weird uh, at a family function, uh, my married brothers and sisters can escape to the other in-law or vice versa. They can have whatever's yeah. going on at their in-laws and then they come to ours, whereas I'm just stuck there. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm the same. Where's my in-laws? Don't have any. Nah. Uh, no. And and it feels – and I often think of you when this, this sort of feeling overcomes me, which is – you don't know uh, the people in my life. You don't know that you don't know that Geraldine, because you don't meet my friends, because th- which are the closest thing I've got to my own family. As in, I didn't marry and create a family, so that's kind of my family. Yeah, they're the people that know me in a different way, the way that your various spouses and whatever else would know you. So, whereas you can have a piece of that life come into our family, that doesn't happen for me. So I can't sort of go, well, you need to understand I'm this person with all these other great people that I know, yeah. like your good self, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I, yeah, well, because I think about you, I've known you for at least 20 years, I think. How old? 38. I would have been, so yes, I'm 38, 18. Yeah, that makes about sense. Yeah, or well, nearly 20 years. Joe's Garage, Brunswick Street. Yep, out the front of Joe's Garage drinking white wine and on a sunny afternoon. Absolutely. Let's oh, go do it now. Halcyon days. <laughs> oh. But that means that. I've had a relationship with you that's in some cases possibly longer than than some of my my sibling spouses or some yeah. of their friends and yet my parents probably never met you. Totally. And I find that Well, well they, they have now. Hello. Uh, well, they would have seen you on stage maybe. I know my brother has um seen you because you're obsessed with me. Of course. I mean, he couldn't be. Yeah. It's... Only human. <laughs> It is, and it's funny. I must say, like, my family's been really good at embracing my friends as well on that level. Like, they understand that I've been single for quite some time and that they – my fam- my other family, as you say, uh, other people in my life who are artists or not or, you know, just, just particular groups of friends. And my family's all about – like, if I rocked up on Christmas Day with four or five friends, they wouldn't, they wouldn't batter an eyelid. Oh, really? I would absolutely embrace that. I yeah. think I'd be lucky if I could get any friends to come out to Noble Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have to pay for the cab for that one, Geraldine. Oh. I'd, yeah, I don't Where is Noble Park? I'll drive, to, I'll drive north of the wall to Brunswick to pick you up and then drive you all the way out to Noble Park. I, that, I've got to say, the, the times I've been overseas for Christmas or I've um, for some reason gone to another friend's for Christmas Day, I went to my dear friend Bridget Bantix. Um, Christmas Day once, and it was it was so, it's so much more fun going to another family's <laughs> Christmas Day because you get to watch it all unravel and everyone else freak out, and you go, I don't have to be a part of this, but I kind of can. It's like watching TV. Transition. I remember before the internet. I don't. Do you not? I'm trying to. Rem- I remember like sitting on a beanbag about. Um, one metre from the television watching Inspector Gadget. <laughs> That's what I remember what happened before internet. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all I remember. I don't... <laughs> pre-internet, before BI, before internet, I don't... Yeah, I, I just have no memory. I like it though. <laughs> That's the other thing about... I was talking earlier about being away on holiday and I just made a decision to not get global roaming. Oh, yeah. So that I didn't have... 
and I still have my phone with me because there's Wi-Fi everywhere, whatever. But I chose not to take it out with me. Changes your life. It just changes your life. To know that you, just to go somewhere and, and know that for the next three hours you're not looking at a phone or anything. I just love it. Absolutely adore it. You're looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. No, because I'm just trying to think whether I'd survive very long. I don't have much of a social circle. So my phone becomes an extension of myself. Um, However, I am repeatedly maxing my data, just posting pictures of myself gurning on Instagram, um, which I think is a noble (laughs) pursuit. But uh, I don't think I've been on a holiday for so long. Either at I, and it's really worth it. Yeah. I, think I highly recommend it. The last time I just up, up sticks and left, upped sticks, is that the correct past tense of <laughs> upping sticks, um, was, was a friend of mine was going to New York and could get me into the Colbert Report. And, and to, into a filming. And I went, oh, my God, I would so love to do that. And she said, well, just do it. You should just do it. And I was chatting to a friend of mine and I, and I said, I can't afford it. I have no money. And, and the only time I can get away is like two and a half weeks. And in my brain, that's not enough time to justify the amount of money it's yeah, going to cost. for sure. And he went, no, you can't afford it. Emotionally, you can afford this. And I took his advice. And this was four years ago. This is the last time that I did a big trip overseas. I've done a couple of New Zealands and that was great in a different way, but it's next door. So um, so you all should go, kids, because it's really easy to get there. But he was absolutely right. I came back going, I just saw a bit of the world I've never seen. Because think about it, prior to that, 2010, 9, 7, 6 and 5, I just went to Edinburgh. I just yeah. did Edinburgh and London and maybe a bit of Northern England and occasionally a trip over to Dublin. That's it. That's all I did. So I hadn't seen anything I hadn't seen before since I was maybe 19 and went to Canada. And it was mind-blowing. And the reality is, you know, I was thinking a lot about this when I was just away is like, and worried about spending money too much and things. But you go, in, in two years' time, I'm not going to remember how much money I'm spe- I spent, but I'm going to remember what I did. Ah. You know, within reason, obviously. Like, I'm not going to spend $10,000 on an ice cream. But, it's like, <laughs> you go, I, that, it, that made me go, just do it. You know, just do it. Like, what's you're going to struggle a little bit with money, but you're not going to remember that. You'll remember the amazing time that you had. Yeah, see, I have that, but I have it with eating out. <laughs> We've changed direction. <laughs> no, eating, not eating. No, I mean, I mean, dining out. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I just want to check you. Yeah, get your it, head out of the gutter, Geraldine. I just want to check you didn't think it was a euphemism. Um, I, I kind of do that on a. Mi- that's my microcosm of what you're talking about. I have to convince myself it's okay to eat out sometimes. <laughs> that don't worry about the money. Yeah, it will be cheaper. Do you know what? Getting a coffee is a problem for me. That's a moral conundrum. Transition. I was getting when I first moved to Melbourne. Again, 38, so I would have been about 18. Mm. And I worked at McDonald's in this, in Burke Street in the city, the three-level McDonald's that used to be there. Mm. And I would work on a Friday and Saturday night overnight, like from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and I got $7.70 an hour. Jesus. And had to wear the tightest pants I've ever had to wear. <laughs> and not in a good way, Geraldine. <laughs> it was real Not in a spandex <laughs> way. In a... People would throw things at me. You've got a fat ass kind of way. Why didn't they get you pants that fit? Um, I think they just like to mock me. I also wasn't out then, and I was quite a camp chubby. <laughs> <laughs> I just did not. I lived in Essendon. You know, I just I was not having. I was studying commerce. You know, like this was my life. 
Things have changed. They've changed an awful lot. Yeah. yeah. I had a girlfriend. <laughs> they certainly have changed. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now you're a a Golden Gibbo Award, Moosehead Award, darling. And, <laughs> darling. And, <laughs> and, and cabaret innovator and entrepreneur. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. I think you are. I think that's true. I've often cited you to your face as well as somebody who I think is always thinking of new things to do and for yourself as well as for the genre. Whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking don't let's know. not start that discussion. No, what not, is cabaret? Let's, let's not open that nest of basket cases. <laughs> <laughs> basket cases. I'm so glad you brought up that word because I literally. Two words. You rang me this morning. <laughs> yeah, while you were still in bed. You woke me up this morning. Sorry. It was, I was, I was, I was on cabaret time. Okay. And you woke me up and, uh, and I got off the phone and all I could think of was like, God, we're a couple of basket cases. <laughs> In a very positive way. I'd had a lot of coffee. I was pretty wired. Yeah, and you're wired and I'm kind of half asleep going, hey, can we just talk about this later? Um, I just need to just go back to sleep now. But, Sorry. Then, but what it did was it made me go, I don't know why basket cases popped in my head just because we are. And I went, where does that term, what is a basket case, literally? Because a basket is a case of something. Like a basket is things you put things in. A case is things you put in. How does that convert to... When you say basket case, you assume that means we're a bit, you know, there's something a bit off about us or we're a bit, why is that basket case? We had this discussion in the driveway and I didn't know it then. I don't know why you think I'd suddenly know the answer now. I, sure, I thought you could have Googled it, Geraldine. I did. I told you. My, my data's maxed out. I just told you that. You don't. Jump onto my Wi-Fi. I do have Wi-Fi. Have we got any Wi-Fi? Transition. Did you used to go to Vince Jones at the Continental? I used to go to Vince Jones at the Continental all the time. Years and years later, he was a guest on Specs and Specs when I was working on Series 7. And I came up to him backstage because we were all just gushing because yeah. the minute the man speaks, he's got the, the coolest, suavest voice. For anybody who's listening who doesn't know who Vince Jones is, he's a, he's a jazz singer, songwriter and flugelhorn player. I didn't know a flugelhorn. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's been around for... Decades, and he he has the most divine speaking and I think singing voice. But he just sounds like every caricature of a of a hep cat, but with an Australian accent. Yeah. And there was a moment in the green room when I look like just I'm running around because I'm I'm a researcher. So my job during record days was to do the scoring, and so I look like I'm pretty low down the rung. I have no illusions about that. And we were found ourselves alone in the green room and I came up to him and I said, oh, hi, I know I just, I know I just look like I'm just kind of a shit kicker around here, but I'm actually a musician. And he went, hey, we've all got to have a job. Oh. And I just went, ah, <laughs> <laughs> can you sign my album, please? He was the best. Oh, those were the days. It's, it's, do you know what? We probably would have been at the same gigs together before we knew each other. No doubt. And they were always full. Vince Jones, who did I say at the Continental, great place that used to be in South Yarra. Um, not many more places that are great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there was... Greville Street used to be a great little street. Yeah, mm. something happened. Uh, but Vince Jones, I'd see Vicar and Linda. I'd yep. see Titters were amazing. Oh, Titters. So good. Oh, yeah. Um, Bob Down even. Oh, wow. Used to play there. Kate Sobrano. It was a, it was a great jazz music venue. Mm. And it was always, as I said, full. Yeah. Just full. Well, I think that was... Uh, don't want to go into more cabaret but 
<laughs> but that was the start of, I think, what I called cabaret in my head. Like when I first was going to see stuff, see stuff, I guess that's the kind of visual I had of cabaret in Melbourne during that period because it was like chairs and tables, uh, people singing songs and talking to the audience. Yeah. But it wasn't a stadium gig and it wasn't a rock gig. And so great was, musicians too. And great musicians. Like there was something... You know, there were, nothing there was narrative-based. Bob Dan would have been the closest to that. Mm. But it was, yeah, that was probably the closest kind of, that, they didn't call it cabaret, I don't think. No. But that's the closest thing that existed around that time. And the, the fact that we all, we all knew, my group of friends, we knew all the musicians that were in Vince Jones's rotating band. So we'd be like, oh, Ray Pereira's playing today. Oh, and in the way that everybody else was talking about rock bands, we were getting that way about yeah, jazz yeah. musicians. Yeah, just, totally. Which is why I get cranky when people sneer at jazz and just go, oh, jazz is shit. And it's like, yeah, yeah, just dismiss about 120 years worth of music like that. I think people just don't. I think people are intimidated by jazz, actually. I get intimidated by jazz. I said to someone the other day, you know, I do a bit of jazz and blues singing and straight away they were asking me really intense questions really? about jazz musicians. And I went, to be honest, I don't, like that I can't answer. I just fall more into jazz blues than I do anything else, I think. But it's not, I'm not like, I don't scat. Now, I've, I've found the origin of the term basket case. Yes, Wesley. Do you want to know? Yes, of course <laughs> I do. Um, I'm hungry for knowledge. It's from the First World War. Okay. Yeah. I'll keep going. It's oh, like a who am I? It is a bit. Yeah. Uh, First World War, originally US slang denoting a soldier who had lost all four limbs and thus unable to move independently. What the hell? That's what we are. That's really taken a bit of a turn. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? <laughs> but that's uh, because the actual, you know, like definition of basket case is um, a personal thing regarded as useless or unable to cope. But why does the why those words? I understand you're a case, but the basket bit. What does that mean? I guess because you're if you if you haven't got four limbs and you're unable to move independently. Then a basket case is something that, where you have to be carried or moved, or <laughs> you can't like a basket. That doesn't sound practical. Case can't move of its own accord. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh at this because it, it feels like I'm not. I'm, I'm, it's one of those awkward like laughing because I shouldn't be or something. I don't know. Um, and then there's a whole blog here about why we call someone who is insane a basket case. Um, so go and read that if you want. Yeah. I'm not going to read it out loud. And and uh, mental health is a serious issue. <laughs> it is. But we can say that because I'm assuming as artists we have mental health issues. Oh, probably. I actually think everyone that lives, anyone that lives in the world today has mental health issues, full stop. There are different varying degrees of it, but I actually just truly believe everyone has some kind of mental health issue at some point. I think that the minute that you... And this is true of pretty much everything, I, although I haven't thought it through, so God knows what I'm going to say now. Um, but I think pretty much everything, if you have defined it, then there's going to be an exception and that that can become problematic. So, okay, in a genre like what, what we do, if you try to define whatever cabaret is, then you're suddenly losing the fringes of people doing weird things around it if you define it too strictly. So as far as being 
quote unquote normal in terms of one's the way one thinks or the way that one learns. You know, think about the way that people teach, the way that education unfolds. For years and years and years, it was no, this is how you teach people and if you can't do it something's wrong with you now we realize people learn things in different ways some people learn it more visually but some people learn it more by doing some people learn it more by by like audibly um i'm terrible with names but if i read your name i'm going to be much more likely to remember it somebody else will hear it and get it straight away but to think that there's one way to learn is means that you think everybody else, by that definition, everybody else is somehow deficient or getting it wrong or can't fit and that's where we have problems. Mm. Um, Whereas if we just sort of think, no, everyone's reasonably flawed (laughs) and have different um, makeups of flaws and we can try to make a definition but we need to be able to sort of wriggle around it otherwise we get ourselves into trouble. Thank God we're flawed. Well, we would write pretty boring shows if we weren't. Oh, it's so boring. Oh, my God, it's so boring. So glad I'm flawed. Oh. Although then you do have a point where you go, has somebody already written a show about the flaw that I have? Oh, they must have. Have they done it better than me? Does it, is it my story? That's an interesting point. When you, something is your story uh, and when it's not. So when I wrote my show about being an auntie, there were lots of points where I had to sort of ask myself, I'm talking about members of my family. And I need to decide when the story is mine to tell. Mm. Uh, and that can become quite a difficult decision to make when you're putting something together. Because you've got your perspective of what's happened in your family or your life, but there are other people involved in that. So how do you tell that? How do you own that? Well, I think it's just respect and you talk to the people that are involved. When I wrote Chaos, which was a show about growing up in the caravan park. I grew up in Kyneton. Yeah. Um, I, it was... A lot about my childhood growing up there and I was kind of taking the piss of some of it and and having fun with it. Mm. And after writing it, I actually thought, oh, God, I've got to – my dad might really take this offence. Like he might think he did the wrong thing by by putting me in this environment at a young age. Mm -hmm. And so I had a big chat to him because I just wanted to make it clear that, you know, this is is a a caricature version of my life Mm. and – and hopefully you'll see the pathos in it and that at the end of the day I was really – it was like the best thing that – it was like growing up in a caravan park was like growing up in Disneyland. You know, it was the best thing you could have done. Like I got to learn so much about people at a young age. And I talked to him and made sure that he was okay with what we'd what, – what I'd put in the show before I did it. Yeah. And I think that's that's the way to get around that if you're talking about – I think if, if you're talking – even if it's from your perspective, if the person is still living – and you're talking, you're sharing moments that involve them, I think just ask if it's okay. It's a bit more difficult when they're children. That's a good point. Yeah. So most of my nieces and nephews haven't seen the show that I wrote about being an aunt. But it is more about my role in the, in their lives and the mistakes that I make and that am I a good role model for those people yeah. or, or not. But... Um, but it's it's interesting that some of the more heartfelt moments in it involve children that are too young to see the show. So <laughs> so maybe one day they'll actually kind of go, oh. But is there anything in there that you think they'd be offended by or wouldn't want in there? Um, not that I haven't tweaked enough. Although my nephew did come once uh, to the show with a couple of his friends. He's about 18. 
and uh, it wasn't scripted, but I did choose that as a moment to to say hello and to remind him of that time that I was babysitting him when he was two years old and uh, his parents were going to be home in half an hour and I thought, oh, I won't change the nappy. They can do it when they get here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's close enough. And, <laughs> and he had a very red bum at the end of that particularly babysitting <laughs> venture and uh, I told that on stage in front of his mates with him there. We're still cool. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I think we're still cool. That's fine. I think a lot of people would be flattered if they're if they're involved. <laughs> you know, if you're not if you're not saying awful things about them, it's like, you know, it's no. I no, think my no, dad, no. for example, would have been he would if he hadn't have been mentioned, he would have been like, what? what well, why why haven't you got a part in this? Yeah. yeah. Well, because a big part of that show was my father saying uh, his conversation about how older aunties are hard to look after and your brothers and sisters aren't going to look after you forever and we've got to talk about your future because we're not going to be around for much longer. We're going to peg it soon is the way that he put it, charmingly. Um, And he's never seen it because he doesn't come to shows anymore. Uh, I don't think he can hear that well. So, But mum's seen it and I did did wonder whether she'd gone home and gone, I'm not sure how. I don't know. I think they're all right. I think so. It's so fascinating. I even think back to the first gigs I used to do as Tina Del Twist where I'd, I'd, you know, be playing a drunk woman. That's the character is a drunk woman who sings the blues. And now it's like second nature to me and my family. But I just sort of, I do wonder the first time I did that where my family would have been sitting in the audience just going, what (laughs) is our son doing? (laughs) Where where did this, what did we do wrong? You did nothing wrong, Wes Nelling's parents. Look what a charming man you produced. That was part one of a two-part podcast with Mr Wes Snelling. We will rejoin him later in the series. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes, following the Facebook page, forward slash Bang on the Strillers, or have a look at the website, www.bangonthestrillers.com, or follow me on Twitter, Geraldine Quinn. Oh, yeah. look at us talking shop. I know, isn't it interesting for all you listeners? I know, I know. Listening to us bang on about how fabulous we are. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs>